Many of you had um, cause during the break to, to lean on him more than maybe you ever did before. And we, we want to acknowledge that Christmas is so wonderful. We have so much to celebrate. And yet, many of us had to lean into Jesus hard, didn't we? So welcome back. Christmas is over, the celebration at least. And I am notoriously slow to put about around 
put away decorations. I don't know about the rest of you. I will still be finding things in March and April that didn't quite make it to the box yet. Um, but even I can agree that for the most part, the, the holiday on the calendar is over. But that doesn't necessarily mean we won't talk about it today. Because it turns out to be really relevant, at least that's what I found in my study. Um, like benediction, every week here at ZF sends us into our week, Christmas sends us into our year, right? And like Ebenezer Scrooge, what we learn from Christmas should be celebrated and, and used in the new year. So let's back up a little bit and remember where we are in James. We have covered this year steadfastness under trial. And indeed, the whole book of James can be viewed as related to our response in times of trial. The implanted word, the sin of partiality, the evidence of faith, and the power of the tongue. Speaking of which, during this break, you may also, like me, have had many opportunities to prevent or spark or extinguish those forest fires that Patty warned us about. And I so appreciated her teaching, her humility, and her candidness in the example that she sets for me. The struggle is real, at my house at least. And our verses this week continue what some commentators see as the expansion in James 3 of that slow-to-speak phrase that we heard back in James 1. And so even though this section for today doesn't say much specifically about words, they are how we most often express our hearts. What we say, the tone, the volume, how quickly we say it, in my case at least, reflects our hearts and impact the peace or lack thereof in our relationships. And we, in fact, demonstrate the source of our wisdom with our words and our actions, most of which have to do with the way we treat other people. So James 3, godly wisdom. Do you have a word of the year? I don't do that, but if I did, I think I would find some inspiration right here. And I found out yesterday that Dayspring has an actual little quiz you take online to find your word of the year if you're a Christian. I thought that was interesting. Um, but words here, like wisdom, peace, mercy, humility, if you are a Christian who chooses a word to influence the way you make decisions or remind yourself of truth throughout the year, then we want to be sure that it's God's priorities we are basing that on, not our own. And so while I'm not someone who sets resolutions or annual goals, the beginning of the year does seem to be a time when many people pause to consider where they are headed. Jen Wilkin writes, for the believer wanting to know God's will for her life, the first question to pose is not what should I do, but who should I be? What is God's will for your life? Simply put, that you would be like Christ. And it's always a good reminder when we're trying to make decisions that his will for us is, is made very clear in the sense that we are to be like Christ and grow in that direction, right? Jen Wilkin goes on to talk about the ways we are called to reflect his image, and wisdom is one of those. So we're going to go with wisdom as our word of the morning. James has related all of these ideas to wisdom, so we know they are somehow connected. And it goes back to that definition from our study, a few chapters back, godly behavior in difficult circumstances. That was the definition given for wisdom. Um, I would lean more toward godly behavior in all circumstances, but it is certainly more challenging in times of frustration, fear, or pain, isn't it? I ended up on these very verses in James 3 this past summer, before I knew I'd be teaching on them, before I started homeschooling for the first time. And I am, yes, the oldest ever first-year homeschooling mother. I have no data to back that up, but I'm just, I've got a hunch that it's true. Um, I have started many mornings with these verses from James, 
because I am who I am and my daughter is who she is, a harvest of righteousness is not a foregone conclusion. <laughs> and one thing I knew as I prepared to have an even greater influence over my daughter's heart and mind this school year is that I need the wisdom from above desperately. If my home and school now are to be a peaceful place, it has to start with me. And so it's been fascinating that while I didn't do a lot of um, preparation for this study, this uh, lecture until recently, so much of what I read all year was connected to these ideas when it was about parenting, especially related to trauma or attachment, homeschooling, on and on. Even organization at some point, I would be reminded of this passage and how God's wisdom needs to be the basis for all of us. We're all in relationships, right? and we need his wisdom. So I've been very blessed by dwelling on these words, and by blessed, I mean changed. And this kind of change naturally spills over and affects those around us. I know the words have impacted me because I have never apologized so much in my life, ladies. Um, I guess I'm jumping ahead. Let's go to the passage. James 3, 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So as you can see on your outline, I'm approaching this passage in three sections, and we're going to start with verse 13, which lets us know, in case we didn't, that there is a connection between wisdom and behavior. Stephen Cole says, Godly wisdom is not theoretical, but practical. It rolls up its sleeves and takes action. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So we see this link between wisdom and behavior, including our speech, which life experience tells us is logical because we are quick to make assumptions about other people's wisdom by their actions, aren't we? But we also want to be, always be careful about judging the heart. That's God's, that's God's role. But to focus on ourselves, let's assume that how we treat others reflects what we know and believe about the Lord. That is a safe assumption because it's biblical. An inward attitude expressed outwardly through our words and behavior. Our works flow from our faith life, and we want the source of those works to be the Lord and his wisdom. In Ephesians 5, it says, Now you are light in the Lord. That's the being part, right? Walk as children of light. That's the doing part. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. What's his will? To be like Christ. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, I'm a word person, and if you're not, I'm really sorry. We're going to spend some time on words, the precise words used here this morning. I'll try to make it quick, though. They are lovely words, and mostly because they represent these lovely ideas about a beautiful life to which we aspire as Christians. 
let's, so let's look at them in hopes that we have some of these ideas at the forefront of our minds in our daily lives and recognize them when we see them. So the first word, I think, will be, I'm skipping down to conduct, I guess. I've got them in a different order than you do, I apologize. Um, and depending on your translation, and I looked up several, so it might be behavior or life or conduct in verse 13. Peter uses the word a lot, and it's an all-encompassing word, more general than the next word, which is works, and that is, or deeds, which can be a task, an action, it's more specific. Um, works show evidence of faith. God looks at the heart, but people see our works, and people are who we're trying to impact for Christ, right? So we have this idea again of an echoes of the doer versus the hearer. We hear, and then we do. We hear first. We are first his. We act through our deeds. The word wise, insight or skill, human or divine, intelligence. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. So where I could find a verse related to Christ, you'll see that mentioned. I know there are lots of verses here. I'm not going to read all those. Do not worry. Um, where there's no verse mentioned, it means this is the only place that the Greek word was used in the New Testament, which is kind of interesting, too. So who in this room wants to be wise and understanding? Everybody, right? Good, because that is the will of God for us. Understanding means thoroughly knowledgeable from gaining an understanding over the long term and personal acquaintance. And so right there we have that idea of relationship with Christ being the, the means to understanding. The word good, which is also used there, beautiful, it's an outward sign of the inward, noble, honorable, and character. Jesus called himself the good shepherd. And then meekness, or humility, or gentleness, a divinely balanced virtue that can only operate through faith. Mild and gentle, biblical meekness is not weakness, but rather refers to exercising God's strength under his control. That's a definition you've probably heard frequently. I wanted to pause on meekness because it seems to be the basis for so much of our Christian life. We need some measure of humility to come to Christ to start, right? And then he teaches us and grows us in meekness. Paul refers to the meekness and gentleness of Christ in 2 Corinthians 10. And Jesus says in Matthew 11, Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And for Peter um, doesn't use this precise word, but the idea is the same. And let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty. Women love the sound of that, right? Of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I want that. And personality type is not an excuse for lack of humility and gentleness and quietness. It does not say unless you're an ENTJ, for those of you who are into Myers-Briggs. Um, Matthew Henry defines meekness as easiness of spirit, easy to himself and all of those about him. That is a good definition, I think, for me to keep in mind. It reminds me of what the lesson said about trusting God and being set free from self-defensiveness and self-promotion. It's this idea of resting and being still and knowing we don't have to 
act quickly because we are we have confidence in the Lord <clears throat> and so verse 13 again tells us that wisdom combines being and knowing and hearing with this idea of doing ESV makes a distinction between the intellectual knowing and behavioral of doing and that all that all is combined Stephen Cole wrote, true wisdom is based on knowledge, but it is more than knowledge. It is the ability to live in a manner pleasing to God because you understand his truth and you live in constant submission to his spirit, applying that truth to all of life. Submission, meekness. We want to be wise, not in our own eyes, but in God's eyes and in his truth. So moving on to verses 14 to 16, it talks here about bitter jealousy and selfish ambition boasting, falseness, it gets worse, Earth, earthly and spiritual, demonic, vile practices, disorder. Um, this is not the part I was focusing on this summer, but it's really important. It was attempting to skip it, in fact, right? It's just kind of ugly, but it's true, and it's who we are if we are not help, letting him help us, and so we can't ignore it. We just can't. Jealousy is a burning emotion, um, the word there, the Greek word, can mean positive, zeal, or it can mean negative, jealousy. And um, while we do want to be zealous, we don't want to be jealous, right? Selfish ambition refers to rivalry and self-seeking, and vile or evil, wicked, worthless, bad. These things are from Satan, and Relational disorder, which was something I hadn't really thought about making that connection, but in these verses you see that confusion and relational disorder come from the devil. That's sobering because we can see that all around us, right? In the world, in our homes, and in ourselves. But Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's from 1 John. John Piper wrote, The frustration that the bad things you hate about yourself or your situation can't be changed. That's what Christmas came to destroy. The devil works to take the good and bring the bad, and Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's a fact of history and a message of hope for a new year of peace when we can be inspired by Christmas. Well, there's a lot in 1 Corinthians about earthly wisdom, and we were sent there in our lesson, but here's a bit more from chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks to seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And down to verse 30, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It comes from him, not from ourselves. Okay, verses 17 to 18. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
Well, I grew up with wonderful parents. They, they are admirable in many ways. They are quick to think and quick to speak. And in my house, we didn't apologize. We were not slow to speak people. My whole family's kind of that way. So this was all new to me, honestly, when I came to the Bible. Um, we just didn't try to behave this way. It wasn't even the goal. Um, but isn't that how we really want our homes to be? Abundant in the sense of peace and mercy and love. No matter how we decorate, if we're minimalists with our possessions, we still want abundance in these ways. We want our homes to be pure, peaceable, and so forth. So pure means free from ceremonial defilement, holy or sacred. And 1 John 3 says, everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And peaceable, peace-loving, 1 Peter says we should turn away from evil and do good, seek peace, and pursue it. And we'll, we'll talk more about peace today. Gentle, considerate, yielding, mild, forbearing. Gentle in the sense of truly fair by relaxing overly strict standards in order to keep the spirit of the law. That was one explanation of the word. Open to reason, willing to yield, compliant, accommodating. Easy to come to terms with because already willing. I think I like that. That should be helpful. Mercy, pity and compassion. In Jude 1, it says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We want to be people who extend the mercy that we have received from him. The word good is used here to describe the fruit. And Jesus used this same word in Matthew 19 when he said, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. It means inherently or intrinsically good. Fruit indicates everything done in true partnership with Christ. And Jesus himself said, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased fruit, excuse me, diseased tree bears bad fruit. We're told to be fruit bearers, good fruit bearers. Impartial, without uncertainty, unwavering loyalty, wholehearted. Sincere, without hypocrisy, free from hidden agendas or selfish motives. In Romans 12, we're told to let our love be genuine. Righteousness, justice, the state of him who is such as he ought to be, the condition acceptable to God. We're told by Jesus to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then back to peace. Quietness, rest, wholeness, when all essential parts are joined together. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, not the world's wisdom, his. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace both from John. And in Isaiah, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. He gives us our peace and then we are to share that with the world. 
In Romans 12, we're told, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What a challenge. In Hebrews 12, strive for peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we get to this verse 18, and it feels like the climax of the passage, right? The goal of sowing peace is a harvest of righteousness. John Piper, in considering this passage, looked back at uh, the verses again from John 1, and, and uh, where it says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. and says there, So he's looking at those words and playing with them a little, but concluding sowing in strife will not produce a harvest of righteousness. Um, the words are so similar there, the righteousness, the production, what comes from it, the outcome. So the positive counterpart is that sowing in peace will produce a harvest of righteousness. And harvests, Stephen Cole says, are not accidental or serendipitous. As any gardener knows, harvests are generally deliberate. They might not come out as we planned, but they certainly won't produce something we didn't plant, right? We'll have a crop, but will it be righteousness? And that depends on what we planted. So we're going to talk about peace a little bit longer here. James Bryan Smith wrote, Peace is not merely the absence of strife, it is the presence of harmony. The idea of peace is not what solves conflict, the idea of peace. It is the peace of Jesus that provides the power we need to live and work in harmony. And let's be clear, making peace does not make you righteous, right? We don't have a works-based faith. Good works don't necessarily even reflect God's wisdom. We can't earn holiness. But loving him as our motivation will lead to these good things, including peace. It doesn't say, actually, whose righteousness will result, certainly our own. Um, but I also have been considering how my actions affect other people. To what extent am I responsible for an atmosphere that is contentious or unpeaceful? If I sometimes excuse my own sin because of other people's actions, justified or not, can they not do the same thing? We're not directly responsible for their sin, but the environment can be helpful one way or the other, right? As C.S. Lewis said, we are helping each other toward that ultimate destiny. So you want to keep that in mind. I think... Um, that if we needed to be convinced that we're supposed to live this way, we could look at Ephesians 4, we could look at Colossians 3, where we're urged to walk with humility and gentleness, with patience, where we're told to put on meekness, patience, kindness, and humility, and above all, put on love, which binds everything in perfect harmony. Sounds like peace. So who are we to be if all these things are true, if we believe the word of God, which... We do. Second, Second Corinthians says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that him we might become the righteousness of God. 
I love how those words keep popping up. That is 2 Corinthians 5. I'm not sure that's on your outline. So among other things, we are his ambassadors. Ambassadors are official envoys or authorized representatives or messengers. They have uh, skill in handling affairs without arousing hostility. That's the definition of diplomacy, but they're closely related, right? They bring peace. And Paul David Tripp says the only thing an ambassador does if he's interested in keeping his job is to faithfully represent the message, methods, and character of the leader who has sent him. We are speaking for him. I am speaking for him, or should be, in my child's life and everyone else around me, including the non-believers that I run into. Would he be grim-faced, tight-lipped, short in his responses? Would he be impatient or sarcastic in cutting ways? I'm speaking for him, ladies. So are you. Do we want to reflect the wisdom from above or earthly wisdom? Worse to consider demonic, right? Therefore, Ephesians 5 said, do not be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. So as Jen Wilkins said, what is his will? To be like Christ. And in this lovely book, um, where she's talking about ways we should be like him, the last chapter is on wisdom. And she makes some clear distinctions here from James. Worldly wisdom self-promotes. Godly wisdom elevates others. Worldly wisdom seeks the highest place. Godly wisdom seeks the lowest place. Worldly wisdom avoids the mirror of the word. Godly wisdom submits to the mirror of the word. Worldly wisdom trusts in earthly possessions. Godly wisdom trusts in treasures in heaven. Worldly wisdom boasts. Godly wisdom is slow to speak. Worldly wisdom says trials will crush you. Godly wisdom says trials will mature you. She goes on, but see, she summarizes it by saying, simply thought, any thought, word, or deed that compromises our ability to love God is folly, utter foolishness, the height of stupidity. Excuse me, it was love God and neighbor. So we don't want those in our lives, do we? The worldly wise place themselves in opposition to God, operating from their own perspective of what is best, a perspective that seeks only the best for them. So, I want to be that Proverbs 31 woman, right, who opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of tongue. Kindness is on her tongue, but I'm not there. And if you've been at my house, I wrote this last week. If you've been at my house yesterday, so if you've been at my house any day the last week, if you've been at my house this morning, you would know I'm not there. But I'm not going to fall into a puddle of despair, to quote Laura Dunshee, um, because... As John Piper says, the path of obedience is the place where Christ meets us as our servant to carry our burdens and give us his power. He came to serve, not to be served. He came to help us do everything he calls us to do. So yes, we're told to be this, right? But we can't do it without him. Deuteronomy 4. So we're into the but how section, I guess. Um, I feel like I missed a page, but... I did. I didn't. How are we going to do that? We're told to do it. We need to know that we can, right? Deuteronomy 4 says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. 
Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this nation, this great nation, is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? So calling upon him, knowing he's near, that's what helps us, right? We spend time with him in his word, reading, meditating on, and memorizing scripture. We don't do this without his help. Studying scripture is more than reading it and hearing it. It is not less than. We aren't transformed just by reading the words. We need the Holy Spirit to use those words in our hearts and lives. Praying. Begging God to make me, this is by Abigail Dobbs, begging God to make me more like his son, repenting of my own sins, is actually not just for my good, but serves my husband, my children, and everyone I come in contact with. Of course, pray for others too, diligently, faithfully, regularly. Serve them in prayer, but remember, I love this, remember it is a true service to others to pray that God would help you treat them as a Christian ought to. We have to ask him for help means humbling ourselves. We know that asking him for help, especially in wisdom, that area of wisdom, pleases him when we remember the story of Solomon in 1 Kings. Solomon can ask for anything he wants, but he says, give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. He wants us to ask. He's pleased when we ask, and he will. He will provide. Jen Wilkins says, remarkably, humans can learn to operate in wisdom if they so choose. We have to ask for wisdom and keep on asking. Uh, James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, remember, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. And Proverbs 2, I won't read that, but um, it's so good. If you just want to read almost all of Proverbs 2, you won't regret it. It says to make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. Call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Um, another step is repenting when we make those mistakes, which we will. Misty Winkler, who is a blogger I've come to appreciate, says, we can come with our bad attitudes and lay them down and take a good attitude, a right response, patience and peace and joy from Christ through the Holy Spirit because he's the source of it. He's the one growing and harvesting those fruits, those fruits of the Spirit. We aren't digging deep down within ourselves and having to gin them up. That's so important, ladies. That's, the, that's where I think I've uh, struggled so much over the years. Um, they are given to us, and we can take them. She has a phrase, repent, rejoice, repeat. And it applies to so many areas, and she actually is not necessarily speaking about this. But if we have that Holy Spirit helping us when we read the Bible, when we catch ourselves, we're going to notice what we've done wrong. And then that's the time to repent. But we can immediately rejoice because he's promised to forgive us and to help us, right? And so we have two reasons for rejoicing right then. The Holy Spirit made us aware of our failure. 
and the necessity of repenting, and then Jesus will help us. And he's not going to call us to do anything he isn't willing and able to help us with. Repent, rejoice, repeat. Apologizing. Sometimes that repentance will lead to apologies, right? As I said, I didn't grow up seeing that or experiencing it. It is hard. Um, I'm getting better. I really am. In my earthly wisdom, I make things about myself too often and use impulsive, angry words. They don't create an atmosphere of peace, and they will not lead to righteousness, mine or anyone else's. I need the Holy Spirit to prompt me and show me and help me be slow to speak. I need to pause. Le making peace can lead to a harvest of righteousness. That doesn't always mean apologizing, but it often does. It does mean reaching out and working toward resolution, certainly. And we can be peacemakers either by being gentle and submissive to start with or by being humble and apologetic afterwards. If we're better at that first one, we don't have to do the second one quite as often, do we? Ted Tripp recommends using scripture to correct yourself, and sometimes that would apply to your children as well. With James 3 on your mind, you can ask yourself, what kind of wisdom was I reflecting in that conversation? By holding his word in my heart, I'm more quickly aware of the ways I fail to live that way. And just week before last now, because we're a week behind schedule here, I... Uh, I had stopped myself in the kitchen. I don't even remember the conversation, actually, that we'd been having, my 11-year-old my and myself, but the word unspiritual and demonic popped into my mind, and I, I recognized right then I needed to apologize for my immature and unkind response to her behavior. By the way, I didn't give her any ammunition by telling her that it was unspiritual or demonic. <laughs> no, no, no. But I was convicted at that moment, and I knew I needed to apologize. And we should be grateful for those opportunities, right? In their book, Resolving Everyday Conflict, Sand and Johnson say that peacemakers see conflict as an opportunity to solve problems in a way that not only benefits everyone concerned, but also honors God. They use conflict to glorify God, serve others, and become more like Christ. They seize every chance to strengthen relationships and make their lives clear evidence of the love and power of Christ. We are called to be holy. We are intended to be like Christ. And ladies, I'm convinced there's only one way. We need him every hour, every moment. Not just for our circumstances, but for our deficiencies, right? We can be inspired or shamed or convicted by these words, but we need to be drawn back to him. That's really what we need. That's all we need. We can't behave rightly. Um, we cannot behave in ways that please him without him. He doesn't intend us to. He wants us to live with him. And we can't imagine a day when the fruits of the Spirit won't be a challenge for us. At least I can't. But he can. He already sees who we will be. He's intentionally shaping us in that direction if we can allow ourselves, humble ourselves and allow it. And Tripp says, although the power of sin has been broken in the beautiful justifying mercies of Jesus Christ, the presence of sin, sin still remains with us. So God's present zeal is to progressively deliver us from the remaining hold that sin has on us. This means that he will use the pressures, opportunities, hassles, burdens, griefs, temptations, and joys to, show, to grow us and change us. Have any of you had pressure or hassles or grief or temptation this week? I know you have. His zeal is to deliver us. That is the good news. 
And what does Christmas have to do with it? Well, we had many messages of righteousness, peace, and mercy during the season, didn't we? And why did he come if not to bring those things? Because there is peace between us and God, because we bear his image, and because we are his ambassadors and the Holy Spirit enables us, bringing peace is a primary function of being a Christian, of being his woman. If I can remember that my deepest need has already been met, can I be at peace in my soul and bring that attitude wherever I go? It is his work, not ours. Luke 2 says, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. I'm sure you heard that many times during the holiday. With whom is he pleased? Uh, Jesus mentions a son of peace. That's a phrase he uses in Luke 10. And how do we know if we are sons of peace? Blessed are the peacemakers, right? We welcome the peacemaker. We receive Jesus. And John Piper says, be amazed that you have peace with God. It's this sense of amazement that I, a sinner, have peace with God that makes the heart tender, kind, and forgiving. Extend that to others. Keep being more amazed that your wrongs are forgiven than you are that you were wronged. And so, back to Ebenezer Scrooge, we want to honor Christmas in our hearts and try to keep it all year, right? 2 Corinthians 13 says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Well, let's end with prayer. I'm going to read this from John Bailey's Diary of Private Prayer. Please pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for this new day. For its gladness and brightness, for its many hours waiting to be filled with joyful and helpful labor, for its open doors of possibility, for its hope of new beginnings. Stir up in our hearts the desire to make the very most of today's opportunities. Give us the strength to confront any mountain of duty or bad habit. Where an action of ours can make the world a better place, where a word of ours can cheer a sad heart or strengthen a weak will, where a prayer of ours can serve your kingdom, there let us act and speak and pray. Grant us the grace to be worthy of your name, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.